All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, it's really good to be here. I want to thank you all again for the privilege of being able to come here every month and, and share God's Word with you. Um, and today we're going to uh, continue in our uh, series on Jesus in the Old Testament, but we're going to break away from the norm today. And so what we're going to do is, you remember how I've been telling you that the entire Bible from Genesis to the Revelation is all one big story. And we use a fancy term called the analogy of faith. And what that means is, is that from the very in the beginning to thus saith the Lord, Amen, at the end, is one entire story. And you can go through and you can read that entire story. And the more you see the big picture, the more you see Christ in that story, then the entire story of faith comes to life before your very eyes. And because you have been saved, because the Holy Spirit now lives within you. He will open your eyes and your hearts and your minds and your lives to these truths in a way that the world simply cannot understand them. And as you grow in your understanding of the Scriptures, you will more and more see how it's all one big story and that it's all Christocentric. And it's very important for us to see that. Um, I do want you to hear this. Um, I I don't know if you all hear that's enough from this pulpit. But I know that every time I come here and teach you, I tell you this. This Bible is not about you. You live in a world that is fallen and broken and egocentric and self-willed and self-righteous and self-sufficient. And me and you are fallen creatures and we certainly get into that same mindset and attitude ourselves. I do it my way. Self-willed, self-righteous, self-sufficient. And when I start thinking about self, I'm certainly not thinking about Him. Remember, when Adam and Eve, they turned away from God and turned to their own desires. They turned away from God and turned to themselves. And not only did they bring destruction upon themselves, but upon the whole world around them. And you and I are their children, and we act the same way. And we need to make sure that we stay centered in God's Word. We need to make sure that we stay centered and realize that it's all about Christ. And so what we've been doing in this class for the uh, past year, I guess, or so, is we've been going into the Old Testament and we've been reading stories in the Old Testament and seeing how they apply to Christ or how Christ is pictured in those. And so tonight what I want to do is I'm going to break away from what we usually do and I'm going to go into the New Testament and we're going to go to the Apostle Paul and we're going to see how Paul does that. See... In Luke chapter 24, turn with me really quickly to Luke chapter 24. Let me read something for you there. We've read this several times before. This is after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is walking and talking and teaching His disciples after He's risen from the dead. It's a pretty amazing thing. You can't prove that with science. You cannot prove resurrection from the dead with science. It takes faith to believe that. And these disciples of His who had followed Him, they saw Him down on the cross. And now they are walking with Him and talking with Him. He is breathing. He is talking. He is eating. He is alive. He is risen. And now He is teaching them all things about Himself. And so I want you to look at at Luke chapter 24 and uh, look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, O you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, He explained to them things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. And then if you look down at verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are My words which I spoke to you. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. So what does it take? First of all, it takes the Word of God, and it takes the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to open our minds to understand those words. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God never work separately. The Spirit of God always works within the Word of God. And the Word of God always works in the power of the Spirit of God. They never work apart. 
And so Jesus is saying, These are my words which I have given to you. So all the Scriptures are the Word of God. And as you read them, you need to understand in the same way that I'm standing here in this pulpit and speaking to you now, when you open your Bible, God is speaking to you. Over 300, 400 times in the Old Testament alone, it says, Thus says the Lord. That means God is talking. And He inspired these writers to write what they wrote so that we could know Him, so that we could receive Him, so that we could believe Him, and so that we could understand Him. And Jesus' method of teaching was to go to the Old Testament and show those following Him that all of those words were about Him. That's how He teaches. He would go into the Old Testament, He would go to Psalm 23 and say, The Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Right, So that song is actually about him. David wrote it. His great-great-granddaddy wrote it. But it's actually about Jesus. And so all of the scriptures are about Jesus. And remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples, he didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to turn to to teach them because they had not been written yet. They were going to be written about 30 years after he ascended into heaven. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, does the exact same thing that Jesus does. When you read the story of Paul in the book of Acts, you will find that every he was a, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't sent to the Jews. He was sent to the Gentiles. And when he went to the Gentiles, he would, uh, he would the first thing that he would do is when any city that he went into, he would find a local synagogue and find some Jewish people there. And then he would reason with them through the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So think about that. Every town that Paul would go into, he would find a local synagogue and he would go into that synagogue and find a bunch of Jews and what would he do? He would open up their scriptures, the Old Testament, and he would begin to explain to them how Jesus is the Messiah and he would use their scriptures to do it with. So if you... You, you, we live in a world, we live in a, in a modern Christianity that today likes to divide the Old Testament and the New Testament up and say that it's two completely different things, but the reality is it's one big story. And you can preach the gospel from Genesis just as you can, good as you can preach it uh, from the John 3.16. Now that we have the Spirit living on us and now that we have the ability to look back and see it's all about Him. Now that we can see the whole picture, we can actually preach from the Old Testament and preach the gospel just as we could can in the New. And so <clears throat> Paul would do that. The Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. God sent him specifically to the Gentiles. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus had been, uh, God had been dealing with one specific race. So what was that race? Jewish. The Jewish people. Remember, they are a race... And they are a religion. Jewish is a race. Judaism is a religion. And for about 2,000 years, from the time of Abraham to Jesus' coming, he was dealing with a specific, physical race of people. And he was dealing with them alone. After his death, burial, and resurrection, what does he do now? He now turns from the very people who rejected him his people, and turns to who? The Gentiles. To the world. And so he specifically chose Paul to go and do this. And if you read the book of Acts, if you ever get a chance to read the book of Acts, what you'll find is the first uh, half of the book, or just a little less than half of the book, is talking about Peter and the church at Jerusalem. Well, who is Peter and the church at Jerusalem dealing with? The Jews. Remember Pentecost. Who was at Pentecost? The Jews. It was the Passover, and Jews from all over the territories had come back to Jerusalem to the temple. Why did they come back to Jerusalem to the temple? Because three times a year they were commanded in the Old Testament to go back to the temple. And this was one of the religious holidays. It was the Passover. And what happens? Or I'm sorry, it wasn't Passover. It was Pentecost. And at Pentecost, that's 50 days after Passover. What happened? The Spirit was poured out on them. And 3,000 were saved, baptized, saved, saved and baptized. Really cool. You go back to the Old Testament. Uh, what was the Passover in the Old Testament? Let my people go. A lamb was slain. 
And through the death of that Lamb, of people were set free. Alright? Well, they traveled and after the Passover, they traveled for 50 days. And after 50 days, guess what happened? Okay. Moses went up to the top of a mountain and he got the law. So you had Passover and then Pentecost, 50 days later, the law was given to Moses. Right. Well, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people in Jerusalem. You see how that pattern worked out? It was almost like God had it planned from the very beginning. He did. And that's what the Bible teaches us. So Paul, Peter, the first book, part of the book of Acts, uh, it has Peter going to and preaching to the Jews. And all of a sudden, God comes to Peter and says, Hey, Peter, I want you to go to meet with these Gentile people. And remember, Peter was like, Oh, no, I ain't meeting with Gentile. Remember? Y'all remember the sheet was lowered down and it was all kind of creepy, crawly things? And what did Peter say? Not for me, Lord. I've never eaten anything unkosher in my entire life. There's no way I'm eating any of that. And what did Jesus say? What I have made clean is clean. And he was not just talking about the food. See, the food, the kosher foods, was a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. A good Jewish uh, family couldn't go over to their buddy's house without having a barbecue when he was cooking a pig on the grill because it was unclean. So there was a barrier there. That food, that, 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 those kosher laws kept them separated. And by, G, by God lowering that sheet down and telling Peter to eat, he wasn't just talking about it's okay to eat clean food now. What's he saying? Those that I make clean are clean indeed. If I save them, they're my people. Okay? <clears throat> so, Peter, 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 and then all of a sudden here comes this guy running around killing Christians and God knocks him off of his horse. And what did he do? He saves Paul and he sends him to the Gentiles. And the whole rest of the book of Acts <coughs> is about the Apostle Paul going and preaching the Gospel to the world. Now, the problem that you have is you still have the Jews who are Jewish. Are they saved? The Jews at Passover. Did they get saved at Passover? At Pentecost? Yeah, you better believe it. 3,000 got saved and baptized. But what race are they? Jewish. And what religion are they? Jewish. And what's the problem? Now these Gentiles are coming in and what's going to be the problem? We can't associate with Gentiles because... They're unclean. And so you're going to have this clash going on. And the Jews are not going to want to let go of things that they've held on to for 2,000 years. And it's going to cause a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. All right. So, we're going to go tonight <coughs> to the book of Galatians. To the book of Galatians. And we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 3, chapter 4. And we're going to try to do two whole chapters of the Bible in 45 minutes, and it's never going to happen. We'll never get all the way through it, but we're going to try. So, Corinthians and then Galatians chapter 3. Now, the book of Galatians, the epistle to the church at Galatia. That's what the epistle to the church at Galatia. Now, could somebody tell me what an epistle is? A it's a letter. That's very good. It's not a female apostle. It's a letter. Right. Now, an epistle to the church at Galatia. So what is Paul doing? Paul is writing a letter to the people in Galatia, the church at Galatia, the believers in Galatia. So all of these people are believers. And he's writing them a letter to help to correct an error in the church. All right? In the book of Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth to correct some problems that were in the church. Who remembers what the problems were in Corinthians? you remember? Anybody remember what was going on there? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And so Paul writes a letter to address that. And a guy was sleeping with his stepmom. And everybody in the church knew it. And so Paul wrote a letter like, yo, y'all got to send him out to church. Get him out. Yeah, excommunicate him. Get him out of there. Hopefully, he'll be restored. Right. So he, Paul, writes these letters to different churches to address different problems that they're having. 
And here's the problem at the at, at the Church of Galatia. The Gal- Galatian heresy was this. Paul would go around and Paul would preach. He would have a giant revival service and all of a sudden a bunch of people would get saved in that uh, proclamation of the gospel. Paul would come and proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit, he's preaching the word of God so the Holy Spirit's at work. He's regenerating people's hearts. They're coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're repenting and turning to Him and being saved, right? How many of y'all know how that feels in this room? Amen? So, right? Somebody preached the gospel to you and God regenerated your heart and gave you a new heart and gave you a new life. And it's a wonderful thing when that happens. But Paul had a group of people that were following him around. They were called the Judaizers. Where's Judah? Judah is in Jerusalem. That's where Jerusalem is. All right, And these Judaizers were coming behind Paul after Paul would leave. And he would say, oh, that's good and well. You've received the Holy Spirit. That's fantastic. But now, if you really want to be saved, you're going to have to be circumcised and start obeying Moses' laws. Now, is there anything in the world wrong with me saying, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery? Are those good rules? Yeah, yeah. yeah, they are literally the written, expressed will of God. The Ten Commandments are the expressed will of God. They summarize how you are to love God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Ten Commandments do. Commandments 1, The Lord is a jealous God, no other God before me. Number 2, don't take God's name in vain. Alright, number three, or no idols. Don't take God's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All four of those laws have to do with loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Okay? If you do those four things, if you don't have any idols, if you don't take God's name in vain, if you don't worship any other gods, and if you keep the Sabbath, you are showing God and the world around you that you love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Alright? So the first four commandments give us God's will of how to love. The second, the all, the sixth commandments, the second table of the law shows me how to love who, my neighbor. Remember what God said. The great Jesus said the greatest commandment is this: love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the ten commandments are a summary of what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. That makes sense. Okay. So, <clears throat> have these laws been abrogated, or do they not count anymore? No. They are still the express will of God. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans that even the Gentiles that don't even have the law, they know that it's not right to sleep around with another dude's wife. Because God has written the law on man's heart. Remember, when Adam and Eve fell away from God, there was no Ten Commandments. But when Adam and Eve turned away from God, they broke all ten of the commandments. They had those laws written on their heart. When God created us in His image, He created us with a knowledge of right and wrong. He created us with a knowledge of His will as expressed in those Ten Commandments. So God's not going to change His commandments. But remember, when Moses went up to the mountain, what mountain was it He went up on to get the law? Mount Sinai. When He went up there, not only did He get a moral law, the Ten Commandments, He also got a civil law and a cultic law. Civil law, what do I mean? No homosexuality, no bestiality, no necrophilia, no incest. If you get caught stealing your neighbor's sheep, you've got to give him four back. These are laws about how you love your neighbor. But they were introduced in a civil code. And who was obligated to follow that civil code? Was the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Jebusites responsible to follow that code? No. Just the Jews. Just those who were on Mount Sinai, got the law from Mount Sinai. Just those who were circumcised and said, we are God's physical people. They were the ones responsible to follow those laws. What about the cultic? What do I mean when I say cult? How many of y'all know what what I mean when I say cultic? The word cultus is a Latin for worship. Okay? 
So a cultic law is laws on how to worship. So give me an example of a cultic law in the Old Testament. I'll give you a hint. The third book of the Bible is an entire book of cultic laws. Yeah. It tells the Levites how to worship God and how to make sure that God is worshipped properly. Yeah. That's the cultic laws. Now, what about the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites? Were they responsible for the cultic laws? And here's a little here's a little thought for you to scratch your head about. Think about this. <clears throat> when the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement and put the blood on the altar, on the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. When he went in and put the blood on the mercy seat, was there a specific group of people that that sacrifice was meant to atone for, or was it for the whole world? It was just for the Jewish people. The high priest only interceded for God's people. You see how that works? So these laws were specific to the Jews. And so what was happening was, in the New Testament, Paul would go around, the Spirit of God would save these people, and then these other Jewish people would come in behind Paul and say, that's great, y'all got the Holy Spirit now. You truly are children of God. But if you really want to be a child of God, you need to be circumcised and you need to start coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. You need to start acting like a Jew. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, that's what the book of Galatians addresses. It's Paul's letter to them to say, those people are wackadoo, do not listen to them. They are wrong. Right? Why are they wrong? I can sum it up in one statement that Jesus made. And this is what he said. That which is flesh is flesh. And that which is spirit is spirit. Flesh does not inherit the kingdom of God. What is your flesh? Everything about you. So what about the breath that's coming in and out of my nose right now? Is that flesh or spirit? Flesh or spirit? The breath in and out of my nose. Okay. Is, is spirit uh, temporal or eternal? It's eternal. This breath in my nose, is it eternal? Mm-mm. So everything that I possess right this very second that is going to be buried in a tomb is flesh. That includes my heart, my lungs, my nose, my eyes, my ears, my breath, everything about me. Remember, when we are raised again in Christ's likeness, we're going to have a new body. And there is nothing about me Standing here before you at this pulpit right now that will inherit the kingdom of God except the eternal life that He has placed within me. That's the only part of me that's going to inherit eternal life. This flesh will die and go into the ground and turn back to dust. But I'm going to be raised again in the likeness of my Savior and I'm going to have a new body and a new spirit that's going to last forever. And so Paul was addressing an issue because this is what those, this is what the Galatians, the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, oh, you've inherited eternal life through a work of the Spirit, but you're going to have to maintain and sustain that eternal life with works of your flesh, with following laws, with being circumcised, with what day you go to the temple. We're going and celebrating Passover and and uh, Pentecost and uh, making sure that uh, you do this and you do that and you do this. And what Paul was saying, what Paul tells them is, look, there is no way that the flesh can inherit the eternal. And what God has made perfect in the Spirit, you are not going to 
enhanced with your flesh. So, I ask you again, and I ask you guys this all the time. What part of you played a role in your, your being regenerated and given eternal life? What part of you played a role in you getting eternal life? Nothing. So why would you think that something you can do or have to do or should do or haven't done or will do or can't do or why would you think that something that within your hands is going to help you to maintain what God has already worked in you? Now, does that mean that I can just let this flesh go and I can just do whatever it wants now? No. no. Because see, if the Spirit of God is in me, the Spirit of God is going to come out of me. And even though this flesh that I have is broken and busted, God will still be at work. Amen. And He has set me free from the bondage of sin and death. Think about that. You have a physical body. The Spirit of God lives in you. And He is going to make sure that you are conformed to the image of His Son, both in body and spirit. Now, from the day, from right now, this very second, until you draw your last breath here on this earth, He's going to be conforming you to His image. You will not be given your new body until the last day on the resurrection. That's when you'll be given a new body to match the new spirit that you are on the inside. But it's a, it's a work and it's going on. And what we need to understand is there's nothing that I do in my flesh that can maintain or sustain the work that God has done in my life. And that's what Paul is addressing here in the book of Galatians. Now, why am I bringing all of this up and what does this have to do with our lessons in the past? Well, today we're going to see that Paul is going to use the life of Abraham and the life of Ishmael and Isaac and the lives of Hagar and... Who was it? Sarah? Yeah. Paul's going to go back to the Old Testament and he's going to use the life of Abraham, the life of Hagar, the life of Sarah, the life of Ishmael, and the life of Isaac as a way to help us to understand the way that Jesus is working in our lives now. Now remember, the church at Galatia, is it the Jewish church or is it a Gentile church? Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles. And think about this. It's the church, it's a Gentile church, but Paul is going to the Jewish scriptures to show them about their salvation. So if anybody ever tells you that, oh, we're New Testament believers, we don't need that stuff. Take them to the book of Galatians and say, well, Paul sure made sure we needed it. You see? Alright, so let's go and look at that. Galatians chapter 3. So now we got the background. These, these people have been saved by the preaching of the gospel and Paul comes back and now they're all worried because they hadn't been circumcised yet or they're not following one of the religious holidays or they're, they're eating the wrong kind of foods, they're eating unkosher foods and they're all worried now, oh no, I've lost my salvation or oh no, I'm not really saved. And look what Paul says. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now think about that. If Paul was asking you that question right now. Did you receive the Spirit of God by something that you've done or by a work of the Spirit of God? Yeah. That's what he's saying. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Who has tricked you into thinking that something you're doing is keeping you saved or going to get you saved? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Think about you being perfected in your flesh. There's a reason why you get every morning and take a shower and brush your teeth and put on deodorant. Because you stink if you don't. See, your body is dying. And every day is dying. And when you eat food, right, it makes energy in your body, but it's also that food has to wash out, right? And it's filthy and nasty when it washes out. Why? Because we're in a constant process of dying. 
and that soap and that shampoo and that that deodorant and that perfume and and that makeup, you lady, all of that stuff tries to trick people into thinking you're not dying yet. You see? You see? And it's flesh. And the reality is, when you wake up in the morning, your breath stinks. Why? Because the skin of your mouth is dying. And in the same way that we're physically dying, we're also spiritually dying. And what does it look like? What is it? So physically dying looks like smelling armpits, stinky clothes, uh, you know, sickness, things like this. What does spiritual death look like? It looks like anger and wrath and envy and strife and jealousy and heresy and sedition and drunkenness and carousing. That's what spiritual death looks like. And even though I'm a child of God and even though I have eternal life, there's a part of me, an earthly part of me, that's dying still, isn't it? And there's a constant struggle going on. And so I have to learn to trust God in faith and allow Him to conform me to His image. And it's not something that I do in my flesh that conforms me to His image. So important to see that. And so Paul says this, Um... Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith that are sons of who? Abraham. Alright, now we now we're starting to ring some bells. Hey, this guy Abram, we, we learned about him. Matter of fact, his name just got changed to Abraham, didn't it? It's been Abram for a long time. Well, let's see what he says about him. The Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Y'all remember what he talked about that just a couple weeks ago. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many uh, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident because the righteous will live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Right? So what is he saying? He's saying it's those who have the same faith that Abraham had. Those are the saved ones. All right? Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Okay, so who was the promise made to? Abraham and his seed. And he does not say, and seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. That's very important. When we go back to Genesis and we read the story that we read a couple of weeks ago, the blessing was to Abraham's seed, not seeds. So, so who is the one seed of Abraham that all other blessings come through? Jesus. Jesus is the physical descendant of Abraham. And it's through him that the blessings come on the world. Now watch what he says in verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. All right, let me, let me put that in simple terms. When God gave the promise to Abraham... It was going to be another 430 years before God gave Moses the law. So God gave Abraham the promise of salvation 430 years before Moses ever had the law. The promise of the inheritance was given to Abraham 
And the law, which came 400 years later, cannot invalidate a promise that was given by God. You see how that works? The law can't cancel out a promise that had already been made. When was the promise made for your salvation? Good guess. When was the promise? Yeah. Before the foundation of the world. God knew you before He ever said, let there be light. And you, as His child, were always a part of His plan. And there is nothing that happens in this world that's going to stop His promise from taking place. Nothing is going to keep His promise from being fulfilled. It was ratified with the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. That was when He redeemed His people. He purchased their salvation on that cross. Now, why did He have to go to the cross and purchase their salvation to pay for their what? Sins. And it's the law that shows us our sin. What we as fallen human beings like to do with the law is use the law as steps to get to God. But the reality is the law is a barrier that says you'll never get to Him. The law will never pat you on the head and say, good boy. It will never encourage you and say, you're doing really good today. The policeman never pulls somebody over and says, hey, I saw you come to a complete stop at that stop sign. Good job. He don't do that, does he? Right? And did you know what else? The law does not have the power. You riding down the street and you see a speed limit sign that says 65, that speed limit size has no power or authority to make you take your foot off of that gas. It only reminds you when you're going too fast. A policeman's not a problem when you're not breaking the law, is he? But if you got, but if you got something, but if you got some under the seat, you got some in the glove box. All right, you're going to be sweating when he's on your bumper. Well, that's how the law works. All the law does is show your sin. Now, is the law bad? No. The law is the express will of God. So the problem is not with the law. The problem is with our ability to keep it. And we can't. Why? Because in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And no matter how hard I try to be good, I'm going to do bad. Right? And so that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, look, Abraham was given a promise way before the law ever came around. And there's no way that our law is going to nullify that promise. So, these people were saying, hey, you've got to be circumcised and follow the law. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. You have the promise of God. And there is nothing in your physical abilities. There's no right. There's no ritual. There's no steps for you to do that's going to enhance or sustain or make better the promise that God has already given you through regeneration and through the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think the Judaizers immediately accused Paul of after he said that? Well, in a sense. What would they say to Paul? Oh, well, you don't have to keep the law. You can just live however you want, huh? It's, 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 a, it's a big fancy word called antinomianism. That's a big fancy word, isn't it? Well, we know what anti means, right? right. Uh, well, nomos is the word for law. So it's anti-law. And antinomian is someone who says, uh, I, don't, I, I don't need the law. But Paul wasn't teaching that. What Paul was saying was that you are not justified by the law. You are justified by faith. So when God looks down on you, you are not justified by the things you're doing. He's not patting you on the head and saying, good boy, you're praying tonight. 
Now, is he pleased when we walk in his will? Of course he is. But we, as fallen human beings, constantly want to try to help God. We want to help him out. And we screw it up. We're the problem, not the solution. And so these Jews were running around saying, okay, it's fine, God has saved you, but now you've got to do this and this and this in order to stay saved. Can we fall into that in our churches today? You better believe it. And so, he says in verse 26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ, Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Alright, now I want you to see that again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Alright? Can I use that passage right there to say there is neither male nor female as a way to be a proponent of the LGBTQ crowd? No. Does that mean that there's no longer races of people? That there's no longer red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in the sight? No. What about free and slave? Well, slavery is over with. Right? I mean, we've abolished slavery, but most of us in this room are enslaved to debt, right? We all owe money and we can't ever pay off and we have to work all of our lives and you know, I mean, we're all enslaved to our sports idols and uh, we're enslaved to all kinds of things, our, our lust and all kinds of things enslave us. But what is he saying? If you are in Christ, you're free. And the flesh is not consequential. And so it's not about being a Jew and it's not about being a Gentile, it's being a, a child of God. It's about being a son of Abraham in a spiritual sense and not a physical sense. Because these Judaizers are sons of Abraham. And you know what they would the first thing they would have said? Not only are we sons of Abraham, we're not Ishmael's kids like you Gentiles. We're Isaac's kids. It doesn't matter. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then when the Father looks down on you, you are clothed in the righteousness of His Son, and He doesn't see Jew or Gentile or slave or male or female. He sees His child. You see? And that's what He's saying there. So, if you belong, look at um, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to the promise. Right now, I want to turn over really quickly. We got about five minutes left, and there's no way I can get through this whole thing. But turn over to Galatians chapter four and verse twenty-one. I hope that for those of you who were here on Tuesday night, this will now make a little more sense. Look what it says, Galatians four verse twenty-one. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by the bondswoman and one by the free. Alright, who was the bondswoman? Hagar. What was her child's name? Ishmael. And who was the free woman? Sarah. And what was her child's name? Isaac. Now watch. Because remember, Paul is talking to a bunch of Jews who say, we are Abraham's kids and we're Isaac's kids. You Gentiles are Ishmael's kids. And if you want to be a part of what we got, you're going to have to get circumcised and start following the law. And what, watch what Paul's going to do. He's going to flip it on their head. Yeah. Look what he says. But the sons of the bondswoman were born according to the flesh, and the sons of the free woman were through the promise. What does he mean by that? According to the flesh. The bondswoman had a kid according to the flesh. What does that mean? It was just a physical act between Abraham and Hagar. And they made a baby. And anybody can do that. But the baby that came from Abraham and Sarah was different. 
What was different about it? Sarah had a barren womb. She was beyond the years of childbearing. And all of a sudden, what happens? She's got a baby. Right? Now, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. One proceeds from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. They're Hagar's kids. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present-day Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now that's a, listen to what Paul just said. You say you're the free ones, but trying to make people get circumcised and follow the law, you're actually enslaving yourselves to the flesh, to works of the flesh. You're doing what Abraham did with Hagar. You're doing it by physical strength. You're doing it by what you do. And you people from Jerusalem are actually the slaves. Now think about what he's telling them. It's flipping them on their head. They say, oh, we're the free ones. We're circumcised. Look at we're circumcised. And we follow the law. Yeah. And what's Paul saying? You're slaves to the flesh. You'll never be good enough. You'll never have the promise. Because you're trying to do it in your abilities instead of trusting God in faith. But look what it says next. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So is Paul looking to the city of Jerusalem now for his salvation? No, he's looking to the Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now I'm going to have to skip 26 and 27 because that would get us off into Isaiah. We can't go there. And I believe it says in 28, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, who was the one born according to the flesh? Ishmael. Ishmael. Persecuted him, was born after the Spirit. So it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondswoman and her son, for the son of the bondswoman will not be an heir with the son of promise. Or the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondswoman, but of the free woman. Alright, so here's what he's saying. Two groups. The, gen, uh, the, the Judaizers, the ones that are running around saying you have to be circumcised and follow the law. The other group is the Gentiles who have been saved and regenerated and have the promise of God through faith. The Judaizers are telling the Gentiles that they've got to be circumcised and follow the law. And what's Paul saying? Oh no. By doing that, you have actually become sons of Hagar and Ishmael. And the people in Jerusalem are enslaved to their own flesh because they're not trusting God for their salvation. They're trusting what they do. You see how that works? That's a really powerful statement. And it applies to me and you today. Because so often we think it's something that I have done, am doing, or will do that gets me favor with God, that gets me eternal life, that gives me salvation, that makes sure I'm going to heaven. Let me say this loud and clear and we'll finish up with this tonight. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you are doing, or nothing that you will ever do that will grant you salvation or give you the promise of God. Because if it is something that you have done, you are doing, or you will do, it's no longer a promise, it's a reward. Salvation is not merited or earned, it's given. It is a gift. And if you have that gift tonight, then you should thank God for His love and His promise to you. You are just like Isaac. You are a child of the promise. And nothing that you physically did. Your parents had nothing to do with it. Your church that you grew up in had nothing to do with it. I mean, when I say that, your church that you grew up in, your, your, your family genetics has nothing to do with the regeneration that comes in Christ. And what does that do for us? The same thing that Paul says. You are free. That's what MLK said. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty I'm free at last. 
I am no longer a slave to my flesh. I am no longer a slave to my desires. I'm a child of God. Now, do I still fall into my flesh? Every day. Right? And look what Paul said. He said, in the same way, he, he told these Judaizers, he said, this is what you're doing. You're doing the same thing that Ishmael did to his brother Isaac. You're persecuting him because you realize that you weren't getting the inheritance and you felt like you deserved it because you were the older kid and you hated him for it and you persecuted him. Well, well, that's exactly what your flesh does to your spirit. It's constantly persecuting you and telling you you're not good enough. And, and you're going to have to let go and let me do this or we're going to mess up. See, instead of trusting God, instead of walking in faith, instead of walking in God's promises, we try to walk in our desires, we try to walk in our strength, we try to do it our way, and it'll never work. So, uh, let me let me finish with two statements that I made during this uh, lecture tonight. Number one, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. And flesh will never inherit the kingdom of God. After that, I said this. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you are doing, or nothing that you will do that will give you salvation, keep your salvation, or give you heaven. It's not what you do. It's what Christ did on that cross for you. And your trust has to be in what He has done. And as long as you're trusting in God's work, you're on solid ground. But the moment you begin to start trusting in what you have done, are doing, or will do, you're on shaky ground again, and you will fall. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. That's His promise to you. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank You for this night. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for what He did on that cross. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing right now for us as our high priest, interceding for us and making sure that we stay saved. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for um, opening our eyes and our ears to your truth. Um, help us to be yielding and submissive to you. Help us to be trusting and obeying. Help us to uh, walk in faith and not by sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.